Hey, uh, Jay, question. What can I do for you, buddy? Uh, did we ever find out what Cyclops did? Yeah, Miles, that's an awfully broad category. I mean, he's been running around the Marvel Universe for more than 50 years. He's done a lot. Uh, no, the thing everyone's upset at him about. Okay, look, he's my favorite character, but I am the first person who will admit that, again, there are a lot of reasons to be upset with Cyclops. Was it leaving Madeline Pryor? Is that no. What you're thinking of? Hooking up with Emma Frost? No. The entirety of the first animated series. No, no, the thing everyone's pissed off at him about now. Killing Charles Xavier? Because, look, the case for culpability there is honestly pretty iffy, you know, given the whole possession by a cosmic force deal. No, not that. Whatever he did after Secret Wars. Oh, okay, you're talking about the noodle incident. The noodle incident. Right, so remember how in Calvin and Hobbes people periodically reference something called the noodle incident, but you never actually get the whole picture, just weird little details? What Cyclops did is the noodle incident of current X-Men. So you don't know? I do not. Does anybody know? Yeah, I have no idea. Hey, Brett, do you know why everyone's so mad at Cyclops? Uh, was it everything he did in the first uh, animated series? No, no, whatever he did after Secret Wars. I mean, look, you're in New York, you've got connections, surely you've heard something. I mean, I keep my ear to the door of Marvel Comics all the time since I'm in New York, but I, I've got nothing. Okay, so who would know? Probably someone at Marvel. Do you guys know any of the current writers? Uh, Jay, you know Sims. Can you call him? I don't know. X-Men 92's separate continuity. What about Dennis Hopeless? We still got his number, right? Uh, yeah, just a sec. Hello. Dennis, hey. Who is this? Uh, it's Jay and Miles, remember? And Brett, hi. So anyway, we were wondering... You write um, essential X-Men title. You write all new X-Men, so you have to know... What, what did Cyclops, Cyclops do? do? What? After Secret Wars. Whoa, whoa, guys, I can't just tell you that. Okay, you know what? I bet he doesn't even know. Oh, I know. But we're talking hardcore NDA territory here. Are you sure there's no way? you got to be able look, to get around it somehow. Look, it'd be one thing to tell you three, but you've got 15,000 listeners. Marvel would fire me for sure. Oh, that's easy. We'll just bleep it out in the episode. Are you sure about this? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We did it for Greg Rocco with the Corsair thing, like, way back in episode seven. It's no problem. Okay. Cyclops, Emma Frost, and Magneto are going on a to the and I gotta go it's sort of like Magneto's taking them on a and while they're there they meet these they're sort of like but they're called and they get their powers from and anyway they run into the local about the they see Magneto talk so they assume he's so they and then Cyclops and Emma have to and to where the and then the <clears throat> there are holes, and in order to the they have to and he gets and whichever longer becomes the new and then from there they do and Cyclops gets because of the like it he also so he ends up which was just all of the and in the process Emma Frost and Magneto what? I'm J. Rachel Edditon and I'm Miles Stokes and we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 104 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. 
So we are taking a break from our usual coverage currently in the late 80s and the lead up to Inferno for a look at the current state of the X-Universe. And with us today is Brett White of Comic Book Resources. Hey, Brett. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. So I should say this was going to be originally when we started this podcast, we were going to do this as an annual thing, but then we did it in episode 16 and then promptly forgot about it and also started doing weekly video reviews. So um, yeah, that obviously hasn't happened. But it's okay. We have lots of things to tell you. And we also have this convenient recent major event that was a great big reset because we've had an eight month gap since it. So we're going to focus mostly on what's happened a little bit leading up to, but also mostly since Secret Wars. And I should add that while I just said this, we do actually review Xbox on a weekly basis. So if you want a more in-depth discussion of any given book as it's coming out, we'll have a link to those reviews in the visual companion, the as mentioned for this episode. I should also say, although I assume it's pretty obvious, this episode will contain spoilers for current comics if that's something you're avoiding. Turn it off. Wait for 105. Yes, we are going to spoil literally every plot point that appears in any speech bubble in any X-Men comic in the last 35 years. We are going to spoil things that haven't happened yet that we don't even know about. And by spoil, we mean we're just going to ruin it. it Forever. It's, it's going to be terrible, guys. Yeah. Yeah. So actually, first, Brett, do you want to introduce yourself? Talk a little bit about what you do at uh, CBR? Yeah, I am an assistant editor. I also have a weekly column called In Your Face Jam. And for a while, I've kind of anointed myself with the X-Men paranoia beat. <laughs> But uh, I'm not paranoid about the X-Men anymore. Everything's good. I'm actually happy. So what changed? Well, wanting to not drive myself crazy, (laughs) I think. Uh, But then also I think that I wrote an article a couple weeks ago just about how the fact that the X-Men have a tie-in to Civil War II, which if you'll remember the very first Civil War, they didn't – they also had a tie-in miniseries but didn't play a big part in it. And then also Apocalypse Wars, Marvel's doing a tie-in to a movie that's coming out, which – No X-Men movie has ever had that in the comics, really. Like, there was God Loves Man Kills 2 when X-Men 2 came out, and that's about it. So, I don't know. I just feel like there's a lot going on that's good with the X-Men right now, and a lot of the, the Inhumans are replacing them fears. I don't want to dwell on that anymore. It was just making me too sad. I want to be happy. Fair enough, yeah. Yeah. Now, I do know that one thing that's definitely noticeably different about the X-Line these days versus the X-Line, say, a couple years ago, is that we do have fewer books. And for me, I'm kind of of two minds about that. On the one hand, you know, there's less X stuff going on, but all the books also seem to have, you know, they executed, I think, with various degrees of success, but they all seem to have... Execute. They all seem to have, you know, a place, like a definitive mission statement, which I think is kind of cool. Yeah, I agree. I mean, one of the things that we've also seen a resurgence of, I think, in the aftermath of Secret Wars, and one of my favorite things about Secret Wars is miniseries and extra continuity books. For a long time, we had, you know, we had nine titles. They were all main continuity. They all crossed over a bunch. It was cool in a grand sweeping tapestry kind of way, but it was also incredibly hard to read. And it was incredibly, incredibly hard to come into as a new reader. What I feel like we've got now is pared down to a much, much more accessible line, including books that you don't have to be following everything to get to, and including space for people to play around and kind of experiment in ways that weren't really available to creative teams before Secret Wars or hadn't been for a long time. And I really, really like that. That's a landscape I vastly prefer. Yeah, I assigned myself an article for CBR called, um, is the X-Men line really shrinking? I think I did this, or it might have been a year ago at this point. Oh yeah, I read that one. Oh yeah, it was before Secret Wars, and I went through and I actually like counted every single X-Book that was published every single month, ongoing series, including like getting super tangential, uh, like going in like Dazzler, Alpha Flight, like just anything that could even kind of be considered an X-Men book. Um, And the height was like, you know, 2004, there were like 17 monthly ongoing X-Men books, 17. Like, that's insane. (laughs) That's too many. And and even as as recently as like 2012, I think there were about 14 to 16 every single month. 
And so now that we're down to, uh, you know, between like five to seven, depending on whether or not you count things like tangential things like Deadpool or Uncanny Avengers, which as the biggest Rogue fan, I, I have to count Uncanny <laughs> Avengers. I will um, count Uncanny Avengers as worth reading, but not as an X book. Yeah. Although Rogue still wears an X-Men logo in that book. It's true. That, that does seem kind of weird. Really weird. Um, but anyway, like this is the most streamlined the line has been in 25 years. And I've done the numbers to uh, back it up. Like this is this is like Mutant Genesis 1991 level streamline, even more streamlined than that, which I'm fine with, I think. Yeah, I would agree. I will say it definitely makes our YouTube reviews way easier. I remember we would sometimes do like nine books in one week. Did we ever have nine? I know we went as high as seven a couple times. I, we, we could check the wiki. By the way, uh, listeners, we have a wiki. You should check it out. We'll put a link in the as mentioned. You should check it out and contribute to it. There are a handful of sort of core folks who have done a really amazing job fleshing it out, including an index of all of those video reviews and the issues reviewed in them, which I am still in awe of. I forget this this exists periodically, and then I go back and reference it because I need to look stuff up, which is fantastic to get to do, <laughs> by the way. So thank you, folks, who've been adding to it. So, yeah, I think the way we're going to basically structure this is by going through each of the core X-Books, the ones that Jay and I count as X-Books, and we'll sort of talk about the backstory that led up to them as we talk about each. So I think we should take a moment and look at how we're defining X-Books, because obviously, you know, we've already sort of disagreed with Brett and split from him on one point there. For us, what counts as an X-Book, we decide on two fronts. The first is basically whether the X-Men or characters who are central to and primarily associated with the X-Men are front and center of the title. The latter, more pertinently, if it's a solo book. So for example, we would count All New Wolverine as an X-Book. Or, oh, and for instance, we don't count Namor. I don't think there's an ongoing Namor right now. Namor's dead, yo. No, but he's my go-to example for this because he's a character who's been on X-Men a lot over the years, but whose primary association and affiliation isn't with them. So we don't generally look at his solo stuff unless it's intersecting very heavily with X-Men books. We made the decision not to do Uncanny Avengers basically because it was very far removed from the line and was for the most part a non-X-Men book with a couple X characters in the lineup or, or felt like that to us. You can even make the distinction of what editorial office they fall under. Yeah, that's how um, we did it for Secret Wars, actually. We got Chris at Marvel to give us a list of which books were just under X auspices, although Deadpool yeah. is, and Deadpool is distinctly and canonically not an X-Men, except in I think well, there's one universe, there's one what-if universe where he is. <laughs> Deadpool now has his own office. Like, it's the Jordan D. White office of Deadpool books, Star Wars books, and then Digital First books, which is where X-Men 92 falls under. So, so it does. There is like some weird confusion, even with if you, even if you just go by the editor office rule, it's still like oh. But then there's this weird caveat. <laughs> wow, X Men ninety two with Star Wars and Deadpool. That is a bizarre. Yeah. Well, and X Men ninety two is extra canonical, so there's that. It doesn't. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't need the level of coordination with the other titles that are all taking place in the same universe. Okay, so let's go ahead and start off with Extraordinary X Men because that's sort of been the flagship book of the current X line. Yeah, this book, uh, Extraordinary X-Men, is written by Jeff Lemire and features art by Humberto Ramos. Uh, and Victor Ibanez did a two-issue arc in the middle of that. Um, this launched the new era of X-Men, I think back in October, like late October. And this is the first book that came out after Secret Wars. And so this is the this is the book that introduced us to the status quo we're in right now, which is where Cyclops is dead. The Terrigen mists are spreading across the globe and causing people to get either kind of cold-like symptoms or straight-up die. And the X-Men are now living in limbo. That's where the X-Mansion is. Right. And I remember there was this big rumor when people were like, you know, snatching up desperately every scrap of information about where the X-Line was going to go, that the X-Men were all going to go into space and they were going to get away from the Marvel Universe that way. And of course, the paranoid X-Men fans started thinking, hey, this is Marvel's way of, you know, taking the X-Men away from what it means to be the Marvel Universe. Marvel Comics is going to literally launch the X-Men and everyone who has ever loved them into space. <laughs> yes. I'm packed 
I'm ready to go. Sweet. So, I mean, you know, Marvel's owned by Disney these days. Their budget's enormous. They that could totally would actually be that. awesome. I would be so into that. Reading these X-Men books with all those conspiracy theories in mind, there's a really funny or interesting thing around issues four and five of Extraordinary X-Men where Mr. Sinister comes back and he basically says, I'm trying to figure out how to solve the whole Terrigen Mist thing. I think part of the solution would be injecting mutants within humans and making them partially inhuman <laughs> right which, which is reading that as like a conspiracy theorist person is like oh no this is like a loophole so they can get movie rights to them <laughs> i think it was just trolling i mean if ever there was yeah. a supervillain who would just yeah. troll the x-men it's totally sinister that's It'd definitely be sinister kind of a feeling i get from the line in general right now i know it's more complicated than that and there's been some coordination stuff involved and it you know, ties into the upcoming events but man the whole teasing of what cyclops did which obviously we covered at length and exhaustively in the cold open so now y'all know yes yes we know what it is but no one else knows <laughs> but actually to take a step back here because the whole what cyclops did thing that took place in what's being called the eight month gap and we should totally address what the eight month okay. gap is well and what came before what this is coming out of Oof, yeah guys uh all you listeners read every single part of secret wars right <laughs> and all of the hickman series leading up to it of course oh god yeah geez i don't know like describing the hickman secret wars series is a whole podcast of its own oh but... i can do this i can do this fast oh go for this is my party trick. All right. So basically the entire multiverse was gradually destroyed by a series of collisions between universes. Doctor Doom and Doctor Strange using a lot of magic, extra dimensional nonsense and other stuff established themselves as basically warring God figures and together were able to salvage bits and pieces of a bunch of the little universes, which they crammed together into something called Battleworld, over which Doom became Supreme God Emperor. That Secret Wars, uh, Secret Wars is a bunch of miniseries that take place in Battleworld. The main Secret Wars series is about the nature of that universe, the lingering survivors from 616 and I can't remember the designation, but Ultimate Earth trying to figure out what's going on and ultimately taking out Doom. It ends with Reed Richards and the Franklin Richards basically remaking the universe. And so now we have fragments of little alternate universes kind of crammed into the main Marvel universe. It's mostly what was 616, which is no yeah. longer its designation, by the way, and it bugs me that there's not a simple one, but I'm just saying that the main Marvel universe now. I will say, if you go down the rabbit hole of uh, editors online, Tom Brevoort and Jordan D. White do have a friendly, spirited argument about it, because Jordan D. White is still like, it's the 616. I, it's fine. And then Brevoort's like, no, it's all different. And they have like this funny little jab back and forth about it. So I think if you want to call it the 616, there's editorial precedents. 616.1? So. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Actually, yeah, I'm going with that 616.1. So mote it be. We're, uh, we're casting I, our I own declare ballot. it. If Marvel editors are arguing over continuity, I think it's up to us to step in. So Executive now all call. the X-Men books, actually all Marvel books, picked up eight months later. So that's how you have things like, you know, Spider-Woman being seven, eight months pregnant and... Every Marvel book has some big change that has occurred in this eight-month gap. Now, some of the changes, some of the things that happened in the big Secret Wars stuff stuck, and some didn't. Yeah. Cyclops died in the main Secret Wars series fairly early on and after becoming the Phoenix, more organically and less creepily and dysfunctionally than happened in Avengers vs. X-Men. He was killed by Doom. He was clearly back by the time things came back, and sometime in that eight-month gap, did something horrible. A lot of people died. He's been described as a mass murderer. He was killed. The only detail that's really been revealed about that is that it has something to do with the Inhumans and Sunfire was somehow involved. Presumably by quitting the team repeatedly until he got his way. I assume so, yeah. And uh, the most recent issue of Extraordinary X-Men, we're now into the second arc and we are in Apocalypse Wars. Because Apocalypse Wars is what X-Men fans are going to be talking about for the next couple months, I would say. Yeah, let's talk about that. Specifically, I'd like to talk about how it's structured, because I find that really interesting. Well, first, real quick, I think we should talk a little bit more about the status quo and the school. Who's running it? Oh, yeah. Who's on the main team? Yeah, cool, cool, cool. Oh, yeah. The main team of the book is Storm, still with a mohawk, but a kind of variation of the mohawk. Colossus, who has a beard. 
Nightcrawler who has like Taylor Kitsch hair, kind of. <laughs> Nightcrawler uh, has issues and scale mail. Yeah. Iceman is wearing some of the worst clothes I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, that that sort of neck gorget thing is confusing. Yeah. There's Teen Jean is still on the team, um, wearing a riff on the classic Marvel Girl look. Old Man Logan's there just wearing a leather jacket. And we have Cerebra, which is Cerebra, but now put into a sentinel shell. Which I got to say, that was a questionable decision. Like, hey, we need to have our computer run around. Let's put it inside the body of something we've all been conditioned to be terrified of. (laughs) To be fair, that's kind of in line with Cerebra in general. I feel like that's sort of a safety precaution. I guess that's true. I mean, you know, there was the whole danger room becoming danger. So Cerebro becoming this. Uh, Okay, okay. Yeah. And they had Omega Sentinel as a member for a while. The X-Men love having Sentinels as members of their team. (laughs) I mean, they know from experience that they're really effective. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> the book also has a strong supporting cast because it does have the school in it. Uh, so we see Forge, which I love seeing Forge back. There's a new teen character named Sapna who kind of has Cypher's powers, but they're more magic-y, I would say. Oh, and also Magic is a member of the Extraordinary X-Men. Forgot her. Uh, right, yes. Uh, yes. And then the students that we're seeing so far are Glob Herman, Anul, Ernst, and No Girl are the ones we've seen so far. I kind of like that we're seeing the school back, that basically the primary X-Book right now is based around a school again. I mean, I guess you could argue that Wolverine and the X-Men and Uncanny X-Men in the last generation were kind of co-primary books. But I like the fact that this is our flagship. There is a school. There are students. There's a school and there are students. But most of the plot lines we've seen so far have revolved more around the team. And so the latest issue actually sees those students forming an away team. Uh, All the students are kind of like, we're sick of just being the students. We want to see some field time, which a lot of fans are also like, yeah, they've been X-Men for like 10 years. So maybe it's time for them to be adults. So Colossus uh, took all of them to become an away team that he would train specifically. Uh, He took them all out on a mission against the Sugar Man. I can't wait till you guys get to Age of Apocalypse and have to explain Sugar Man. Oh, boy. That I, I think we did a cold open about him at some point. Like, Probably. And, and making Nate Gray a cross-dimensional portal. <laughs> <laughs> to get to the end of the issue, like, those students are now aged up. They all travel to the future and more time travel gets involved. And now all those students are some nebulous amount older, which is uh, that's a development, I would say. Yeah. And it's cool to see. I mean, I got to say, like, seeing more badass, more developed, older, whatever versions of characters we know and love, like, that's a trope I never get sick of. That was one of the things I actually really liked about the Black Vortex storyline, getting to see that. Well, and the the Uncanny Annuals about Tempest. Yeah. And so, actually, let's take this opportunity to talk about what Apocalypse Wars is, because, like you said, Extraordinary X-Men is now in Apocalypse Wars. By the time this goes live, I think the Uncanny X-Men book will have started that as well. Apocalypse Wars isn't exactly a crossover. It's a group of roughly thematically linked books that are happening across multiple lines at the same time, I believe. It reminds me a lot of Fall of the Mutants in that regard. Yeah. It's kind of cool because each book is in a position to do something with Apocalypse. I would say, though, that Extraordinary X-Men is kind of in the most tangential, indirect position in that regard. They wake up in the future, and I mean, the last page reveal, all we know so far is that in this future timeline that however many years have passed, uh, the four horsemen are Colossus- a female Moon Knight, Venom possessed Wolverine and Deadpool because Deadpool. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm curious what this does for the book, because I don't know to talk a little bit about kind of where the book's been. For me, it's felt like it hasn't had a solid, solid direction yet other than being the flagship book and kind of showcasing the position of mutants in the world. Yeah. And I mean, its position as the flagship book has, I think, been one of the weaknesses of the line, because this is a book that has really, really struggled to find its tone and its voice and its narrative hook. It's felt 
kind of undirected and diffuse. There have been a lot of good ideas, but not a lot of cohesion. So I'm hoping that Apocalypse Wars will give it a little bit more direction in that regard. It's been an odd and frustrating title to follow because, you know, creative team-wise, lineup-wise, I should like this book a lot more than I do. But it just seems like it hasn't quite been able to catch its footing yet. It has definitely covered the most ground of the three team books. Because, I mean, I think we were on, like, our fourth mission so far. Like, there's been a lot that's happened in just eight issues. Right. They went to Weird World, and they had the battle in Limbo, and they've been rescuing mutants left and right. They fought Sinister. They rescued Nightcrawler from his own brain. Like, a lot's gone on. But I think of the three teams, if you're just looking at character lineup, I really love seeing Storm, Colossus, Nightcrawler, and Old Man Logan on a team together. That yeah, it just... feels classic. So let's talk about our next team book, that being Uncanny X-Men. So this is a really weird version of Uncanny X-Men. Normally, Uncanny is kind of the default book, the flagship book itself of the line. And in this case, we're seeing something a lot more along the lines of X-Force. So this one's written by Cullen Bunn, who previously did the Magneto ongoing, which was awesome. And that's appropriate because this version of the X-Strike Force style team uh, is led by Magneto. It's Magneto with a bunch of mostly either reformed villains or anti-heroes or Monet Saint-Croix, who's just sort of her own person. It's an interesting concept. Art-wise, we've had six issues. The first five were done by Greg Land, who Jay and I have had trouble with his art in the past. Yeah, I've had a huge amount of trouble getting past the art on the first five issues of this series. I like what I've seen of Lashley so far, but I honestly at this point can't tell whether that it's good or that it's, it's just heads and tails better than what was. But it's solid. It's working for me. Yeah, uh, Lashley is Ken Lashley. He's the artist that has taken over with the first chapter of Apocalypse Wars. So who's on the team? Okay, so this team, like I said, it's led by Magneto. We also have Psylocke, Sabretooth, M, and Archangel. And then sort of running around in the background, I'm assuming they'll become members of the team at some point, are Phantom X and Mystique. Well, we've sort of got Archangel. Archangel's a little complicated in this book. He's basically a mindless shell who Psylocke has been psychically controlling, basically like a remote control angel of death. Yeah. They keep calling him a predator drone, which, which is pretty accurate. It, it's it's evocative and kind of terrifying. Yeah. 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 Oh, my God. You know what he is? I just realized this. What? He's Deadpool from X-Men Origins Wolverine. Oh, geez. Oh, geez. Don't say that. I'm so sorry. Oh, you I, ruined, I just it. ruined it. I ruined it forever. Well, X-Men is over, guys. I'm sorry, listeners. Uh, <laughs> that was the yeah. end. <laughs> But anyway, yeah, so the premise of this book, we have, you know, the main X-Men, Storm's team, and the school, which has teleported to Limbo, the demonic realm that magic sort of runs, to get away from the Terrigen Mist Cloud, to get away from a humanity that hates and fears mutants even more because of the Mpox that comes from the Terrigen Mist Cloud. And because of whatever Cyclops did. And because of whatever Cyclops did, yes. And so Magneto is running a team that doesn't like that philosophy, that feels like that's running away, that they want to be more proactive, that they want to use whatever means are necessary to make the world better for mutants. So A, that lines up with Magneto. B, that lines up with the last few incarnations of X-Force that this team seems to be modeled after. So it's kind of a cool role. It's an interesting statement to call this Uncanny X-Men, to use the title that yeah. has been used for the flagship book, for one with a very different both lineup and sort of MO than the X-Men have had before. But I guess it kind of does get across just how messed up the world is for mutants right now. I also like there is an interesting kind of power struggle or dynamic between Psylocke and Magneto. Their points of view is kind of a clash every now and then. We got to see this kind of an issue, I think, five, when the team took Triage, a mutant that they had rescued, to visit Storm's team, which was the first time that we'd seen two X-Men teams interact with each other. And you had Storm kind of warning Psylocke, like, are you sure you guys want to be out there doing that with Magneto? Like, are you cool? <laughs> is sowing the seeds of distrust amongst the X-Men teams, which I, that's internal dynamics that I find really interesting. 
Yeah, I agree. And from what I understand, um, those two teams of X-Men clashing are going to be what the Civil War X-Men story is going to be about. You mentioned Psylocke and Magneto's dynamic, and that's actually one of the more interesting things about this book for me, because we've seen Psylocke in the last couple runs of X-Force really work on this internal conflict that she's been having between, am I a killer who does what's necessary to accomplish my goals, or am I this more, like, compassionate, good person that I want to be? And honestly, that's a conflict we've seen since the character, like, first went over to the X-Men, ever since she first came over from Captain Britain, and I think everyone sort of forgets that by default. But yeah, so seeing her as the heart with a killer past, and Magneto as the utterly uncompromising figurehead of this movement, that's kind of awesome. Similarly, seeing Sabretooth and M, seeing their dynamic, Phantom X and Mystique, that's something that Colin Bunn's always been good at in what I've read of his work, is having the dynamics between pairs of characters be fascinating and believable. Bunn is a freaking stellar writer, and I'm really glad he's back here. I was worried that after uh, Secret Wars, when the Magneto ongoing was gone, they wouldn't give any books to him, so happy he's doing that. We'll see. I mean, Jay, like you mentioned, I think the art for some people has been an obstacle in the first five issues. With Lashley on board, whether he ends up being the ongoing artist or not, there's some cool stuff here. And especially as the X team start interacting more and more, I'm I'm really interested in seeing where the hell this goes. So there are a couple things story-wise I think we should touch on in this book. One, and the first one of those, is the Dark Riders. These are yes. guys who we've seen before, right? This is yes. not their first time. Uh, yeah, Brett. Oh, I you, love the Dark Riders. This is not guys. their first rodeo. Yeah, you're, you're a 90s guy, Brett, so by all means, uh, please. The early 90s were this glory period of mutant villain teams. Like, I love the Nasty Boys. I love the Marauders. I love the Mutant Liberation Front so much. <laughs> and then the Dark Riders are just this weird team of bounty hunter inhumans and mutants working together. In interviews I've done with Cullen, he's like, that was kind of a happy accident that like the Inhumans and mutants are so connected now. And here was this team of X-Men villains from 20 years ago that are made up of Inhumans and mutants. It's such a cool thing. It's a roster of a whole bunch of weirdos. <laughs> like They're Barrage, really freaking weird, Sinex, yeah. Hurricane, Deadbolt, just a whole bunch of just like random characters that have like kind of nebulous, weirdy powers. Um, but they have badass designs. Guys, I love Gauntlet. Oh, Gauntlet. So good. I'm just like, I'm geeking out over these guys. I like that sort of lizard, wolfy monster thing. I have no idea what its name is. Oh, Spine? There spine? we go. Spine? With a Y? <laughs> it was definitely oh, 90s, the 90s. Yeah. Oh, see, that's the thing. Like, back in the 90s, you had all these teams with all these new characters, like you were saying, but a lot of them are just like, all right, you have 10 seconds. Think of 10 character names. Go. Okay, yeah, have, yeah. have you added some gratuitous Ys yet? Or Xs? <laughs> Either way. It's only every now and then would any of them ever get any characterization. Like, Tempo from the Mutant Liberation Front gets some amazing characterization. But then she's a part of a villain team, so you never really see her that much. Um, and I don't really know if any of the Dark Riders ever got that kind of fleshing out, but it was still really, really exciting to see them back after literally about 15, 17 years God, maybe even more than that, 20 years uh-huh. away? I loved it. Oh, and speaking of uh, Blast from the Past and Uncanny, uh, we have freaking Zorn back as a character. Whoever yeah. thought we'd see Zorn again? I want to go back to the Dark Riders for a minute, though, okay. because what is these guys' deal? I remember them showing up in, what, Executioner's Song? Oh, they were in that, yeah. yeah they, and they, and were, they first appeared in, I think, the X-Factor arc that was written by Jim Lee and like Spertasio. That was right before extinction agenda it's the arc where nathan christopher gets shunted into the future right they were a part of that storyline and they were originally they kind of just like served whoever was the most badass villain so i think they started as apocalypse henchmen but then during executioner song when strife basically like bested apocalypse they were like okay cool we're with you now and they're back uh, with apocalypse and then they at operated this point right kind of just like on the fringes for a while and then just disappeared they're back with apocalypse now right 
Well, they're, that's sort one of the of. main mysteries of this book is that they keep saying they were serving a new master or trying to impress a new master. It hasn't really been revealed yet who they're serving. They've like name dropped Akaba and like Apocalypse and stuff. But, you know, I think who they're really serving or trying to impress is something hopefully we'll find out soon or never like what Cyclops did. I'm guessing it's actually the locust from the Silver Age. Everyone's famous, most uh, definitive X-Men villain ever. Guys, guys, wait. No, no, no. If it's a tease substitution for Apocalypse, they're taking it back to the beginning. It's the owl. It is. Uh, it is Leland Owsley, or you know what? It's Eric the Red, who in reality is the owl. That's my final theory. There we go. Oh my god! Perfect. Now I'm just imagining Leland Owsley from like the Daredevil TV show, but wearing Eric the Red's like Viking bondage gear, and it's a unique image. I gotta say, yeah, it's weirdly easy to picture. Right, listeners. If you take nothing else from this episode, then please that mental image take it to your grave. So yeah, that's Uncanny X Men. Interesting stuff so far. It looks like Apocalypse Wars, based on the covers we've seen, is going to play with the fact that Archangel has had an Apocalypse seed in him and sort of has the ability to not exactly become Apocalypse, but to kind of incarnate of uh, the essence of Apocalypse within himself. Yeah, to effectively become Apocalypse, to become Apocalypse in role, if not identity. Yeah, and so for anybody who's been following our podcast, you know, episode by episode, you know, that kind of makes sense. Based on Apocalypse turning Angel into death, it would make sense that there would be some, like, Apocalypse-ness inside Angel. Actually, I should say this is recapped at exhaustive length. It's about half of Uncanny number six, which came out this past week as this episode airs. So if you want a detailed sort of how Angel got from there to here recap, that would be a good issue to grab. That covers it pretty well. Uh, guys, I just thought of something we really need to do the entirety of the movie, How Stella Got Her Groove Back, as how Warren got his wings back and don't change anything except for the main character and the fact that Groove becomes wings. Someone make this. Someone get millions of dollars and make this now. That's the other thing you can take home from this episode, listeners. Okay, so This episode is terrible. This is like an episode that gives you awful things and then runs away. <laughs> Giggling. Hi. We're like Jared Leto on the set of Suicide Squad. <laughs> oh, God. I never thought that comparison would be made to our show, but, you know, I, I feel okay I'm, about I'm that. I'm so ashamed. <laughs> um, okay, so that's Uncanny X-Men. What's our next book? It wouldn't be an X-Men line without at least two Wolverine ongoings, and I'm going to start with my very favorite, which is all-new Wolverine. Um, this features Laura Kinney. Formerly X-23, now and forever the one true Wolverine, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, me too. This is written by Tom Taylor, with art by David Lopez and David Navarro, and we're six issues in so far. It is, I think, one of the very strongest books of the current X line. Wolverine is also in all-new X-Men, but this is her solo adventures, and I get the impression that this takes place somewhat prior to all-new X-Men, just relative to where the character is. This book so far has been about her going back discovering and trying to track down a group of flawed clones of her who are created by Alchemax, which it has more continuity basis, but is for your intents and purposes, the generic evil science organization. So we've got Laura and we've got a group of Laura clones at different ages and stages of development who she's been running around with, who've mostly been killed off over the course of the series, save for the youngest one, Gabby, who's still with her. Gabby is awesome. Can we just talk for a second about how rad each of the Laura clones has been? We can. We can also talk about the fact that, man, so one of the things that I love about this book, of the many, many things, so Lopez and Navarro do an amazing job of taking a cast of four characters who are functionally identical and distinguishing them using things like facial expressions and body language, not just different outfits or different hair. You know, Laura and her three counterparts are one of the coolest and one of the best team lineups, I think, that we've sort of stumbled across in a while. 
Yeah, I mean, who would have expected that? But it's kind of cool. I mean, okay, so Laura Kinney and to a lesser degree, Logan have always been all about nature versus nurture. You know, if you have this animalistic nature, this horrible traumatic background, does that define you as a person? Yeah, and for the same reasons. I mean, I think good Wolverine stories with both those characters largely end up being redemption stories, either about Wolverine or about someone else who Wolverine is trying to save. Yeah, so it becomes really cool when you see some versions of Laura who similarly have just been through hell and are kind of genetically weird and just seeing how they've reacted to things differently than Laura has. And I think not that it shows them in a negative light exactly, but we do see by contrast just how heroic Laura has become after all she's been through. So with Laura as a hero, I want to talk about that a little bit too, because she's taken on the mantle Wolverine. She's wearing a costume that's very deliberately evocative of Logan's Wolverine costume. I love the extent to which visually and narratively she both echoes a lot of Logan's themes and emerges as very much her own character with her own arcs. The stuff they have in common and the stuff that's consistent to the two of them as characters, the stuff that at this point has been consistent to the identity Wolverine is still there, but she doesn't come across like a weaker echo of Logan. I think she's a legacy hero in the best sense of the word. She's about taking something inherited and valuable and transforming it and really owning it herself. She also still feels like X-23, um, X-23 in a new role. It's not like they're just writing Wolverine, but just drawing him differently or anything. It still feels like the through line that we've seen Laura go through, especially over the last couple of years. And you kind of see that in the first issue when we actually get a callback to her old X-Force days with Wolverine in like a uh, flashback scene. Yeah. And I, I like that. I like that it feels like a natural growing of her character. That reminds me, we should probably actually mention why she's Wolverine and why Logan isn't anymore. Oh, yeah, he's dead. Yeah. Um, there was this big event called Death of Wolverine, and it was very strange, and he ended up covered in adamantium after his healing factor stopped working. Long story, not particularly relevant. But yeah, Logan's gone, and honestly, I think he's a more interesting character now that he is gone. Well, 616 Logan is gone. There is a Logan who's running around 616.1, and we're going to get to him in a minute because he's also got his own ongoing. But for all intents and purposes, Wolverine is now Laura Kinney. And that's actually something to tangent off briefly. So Wolverine is gone, which is to say the Logan Wolverine is gone. Cyclops is gone. And so now we have an X-Men line without the two most famous, most prominent characters. With the irony that there are still a Wolverine and a Cyclops running around. But yeah, <laughs> they're alternate timeline slash reality ones. But that's really interesting to me. That's a really, I mean, one of the things I've always enjoyed about X-Men is that the lineup does change, is that you are going to get different focal characters at different times. That's certainly something Chris Claremont during his many, many years on the book was really big on. So it's kind of cool to see that again. Yeah, I got to say, while this line's been struggling to get its footing and sort of find its voice, one of the things I really appreciate about it is how significant a deviation it is from the previously established status quo and status quos. I mean, it may not be what Claremont was exactly envisioning when he was talking about a dynamic line and ongoing change, but it's different and it's leaving me guessing. And as a reader, I really, really appreciate that. And it's a gap that had very much, you know, not been filled before. It's interesting because we lived in that Cyclops Wolverine schism for three years, maybe longer. Like it lasted a very long time. So to have both of them off the table. And then to also have characters like Emma Frost, who was a major driving force of the line for the past couple of years, she's also MIA after the eight month gap. Yeah, the line has shifted its focus to, you know, to give space to a character like Laura Kinney to become the new Wolverine and to actually star in a series that is exploring her character in a new way. Yeah, to let the next generation of mutants really step forward. And that's the case, you know, we talked about that some in context of Extraordinary X-Men. That's very much the case in All New, which we'll get to in a little bit. So I guess with that, we should probably look at the other boring Wolverine book. 
So I was at karaoke last night, right? And there were a lot of really good performers. I think I heard the greatest version of Business Time by Flood of the Concords I've ever heard. And so, you know, if your name's in there and you're, you're waiting to get called up, you're like, holy crap, I hope the person right in front of me isn't amazing because I'm going to look terrible. I, I did okay. I did a gay bar by Electric Six, my karaoke specialty. Ooh, nice. Oh, it's so much fun. My voice is a little scratchy. That's why. But anyway, the reason I bring this up is that, Jay, you just covered All-New Wolverine, and now I'm going to cover Old Man Logan. And Old Man Logan is pretty good, but after All-New Wolverine, anything would look sort of lackluster by comparison. I am frustrated by Old Man Logan. It is a good book. It's fine. There is nothing wrong with it. But honestly, I wanted more of a world without Logan. I think letting that character die and letting the world around him move on some was a good move. I think it was a good narrative move. Honestly, I think it was a good characterization move. And while Old Man Logan is perfectly well-written, you know, it just feels a a little, maybe not pointless, but it feels like it kind of cheapens that. Well, I'm going to have a counterpoint for you, but first let's talk about some of the basics. So, Old Man Logan. Who is Old Man Logan? First of all, Old Man Logan is somebody who, whenever I read his name, I hear Old Man McGucket from Gravity Falls instead, which is sort of a different feel. But does he have a large animatronic Loch Ness monster? That's my Really one driving question about the series. I mean, I would assume so. It's just off panel. I mean, maybe it'll show up in number five. But anyway, so Old Man Logan was actually a storyline that was written by Mark Millar quite a long time ago, which showed us a potential alternate future where supervillains had taken over the world. And basically, the combination of that and written by Mark Millar should tell you everything you need to know about the details of that world. <laughs> it's um dark. There's a lot of Hulk incest, which is weird. But in this future, Wolverine has basically laid down his claws. Well, I mean, he's retracted them into his forearms, that is to say, and has stopped trying to be a hero because the villains have straight up won. And he's got a family and he's trying to protect them. And his family gets killed and he ends up hanging out with old man Hawkeye and they do some stuff and it's all very sad and very violent. So, yeah, during Secret Wars, we got another Old Man Logan series. We got a miniseries, which was set in a variation of that world, where this old, broken-down, depressed Logan ends up getting outside of his Old Man Logan-style domain and battle world and sees a bunch of other stuff. He ends up in the Age of Apocalypse and some other places, and at the end, ends up in Earth 616.1. And so this series follows him. You know, he's in our, quote, main Marvel universe now, and is just freaking traumatized by all the shit he has been through. So a lot of the plot so far has been him just going after all the villains that led to his world becoming what it was. Yeah, he's got a kill list. He's been working his way down. And it's very Kill Bill. It's very Kill Bill. It's very every single character who comes from a dark future and ends up back in a mainstream timeline. It also takes place somewhat prior to most of the X books that we're seeing, doesn't it? Yeah, because in Extraordinary yeah. X-Men, he's, you know, meeting up with the team and he seems, I'm not going to say well-adjusted, but certainly not randomly stabbing anybody who looks like someone he doesn't like. So, you know, there's been some progress there. This book, it's been interesting. Now, Jay, you mentioned that you preferred a world without Logan right now, and this is indeed Logan. But for me, the fact that it's such a different take on Logan, the fact that it is a, you know, this was my last day on the job, I was about to retire, I've lost my entire family because they've been murdered, and now I'm super screwed up about it. Like, it's a different take on the character, and I'm okay with that. I, too, like the Logan that we have known for so many years is dead. I think that his arc ended, basically, and now we need a world without him. But this is a different take, and it gives us a chance to have a character like the Logan we know, but not the same. I will say that this storyline, the future traumatic stress disorder coming back from the past, trying to adjust to a world that is not yet broken in the ways that you expect it to be broken or break, plays differently here than I've seen it before in ways that I like. And I think a lot of that is based around having an older protagonist. Oh, and it occurs to me we should also cover creative team. So, yes. Oh, uh, we should. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. It's Jeff Lemire. Is it Jeff Lemire or Jeff Lemire, Brett? Do you know? Because I've been saying Lemire. I feel like I always say Lemire. 
All right, so we'll just go ahead and split the difference and say it's written by Jeff Lemire. Um, I'm pretty sure it's Lemire. Yeah, well. (laughs) I I was also really sure about Bacala, though, and that turned out to be Patalo, so. I mean, my name is pronounced Worcester, So it's written by Jeff. It's written by Jeff. (laughs) And uh, the art's by Andrea Sorrentino, and the art is really cool in this book. That's the same artist that did the art for Brian Bendis' Secret Wars miniseries of Old Man Logan. And it's this really cool, like, expressive, painted style that I really enjoy. It's sort of muddy in a cool way. So, you know, it's an interesting book. I mean, I think it absolutely has its own place. I do wish that if we're going to have two solo books that they're not both Wolverine related, but you know, whatever. The books that sell are the books that sell. Okay, so again, I talked about this story having a little bit more impact when it's got an older protagonist. And one of the things that I think it's done really well is make really good use of a couple second generation Marvel heroes who are running around right now. Specifically, Amadeus Cho as the Hulk and Kate Bishop as Hawkeye. So the 2016 or whatever of this world where we have a different Hulk, a second Hawkeye, a different Thor, etc., is not the that era that this version of Logan remembers. So it's kind of sad watching him try to change the future when it's immediately obvious to the reader that it's a different future because it's a different timeline completely. It's also done some really interesting things with inverting his usual relationship to and sort of the typical patterns that he's fallen into with younger heroes. Yeah, he's a total dick to them and also tries to stab them a lot. Well, and is wildly out of his depth in ways that they aren't. So we are going to go back to the young end of the line and in fact to another book featuring all new and all best Wolverine. That is all new X-Men. We're seven issues out in this series right now. It's written by Dennis Hopeless, drawn by Mark Bagley, and it's got um, a pretty large team. It's got Cyclops, Angel, Beast, Iceman, Wolverine, Kid Apocalypse, and Oya. And of those, the ones whose names you recognize immediately as original X-Men are not the original versions. They are the younger, teenage, time-displaced versions who Beast dragged to the future as sort of a misguided uh, moral object lesson for adult Cyclops. So uh, we've got like, you know, roughly 16-year-old Scott Summers, Warren Worthington, Hank McCoy, and Bobby Drake, who again are running around with Laura Kinney, with uh, Evan Sabanor's Genesis or Kid Apocalypse, depending on how evil he is at the time. He's complicated. He is complicated. He's Genesis under normal circumstances. I assume that that's going to tie into Apocalypse Wars since he is technically a clone of Apocalypse. And um, Hoya, who's uh, Edie Okonkwo, who is one of, I think, the character who's really stuck around from Generation Hope. This is basically a road trip book. It is a bunch of teenagers who are running around trying to work out their place in a world that hates and fears them, and for several of them is also some unspecified period of time later than they're used to, where an adult version of one of them basically blew up the earth and none of them like the futures that they're looking to grow up into. I mean, I think the one who's turned out least cataclysmically is Iceman, who looks at his adult self and basically sees a future of another 15 years in the closet. Yeah, and I mean, we've got to talk about that because one of the last big events that happened before Secret Wars was that Iceman came out. First young Iceman and then older Iceman in reaction to that. And man, I was so worried that they were going to write that away after Secret Wars. Oh, yeah. And they didn't. Yeah, now we get two books with two Icemen, both of them having sometimes flirtatious reactions with other guys. And And, that's so cool to see. We get parallel coming out stories about a teenager and an adult, which I really appreciate because while the former, I think, is something we're seeing more and more and more of in comics, we don't see a lot of the latter and it's so important and it's so valuable. Yes. Uh, Yeah. That's one of the things that I like with Richter and Shatterstar when they came out, Peter David just kind of like they jumped into like, yeah, we were always gay. And as a reader, I was like, no, I wanted to see young Richter. I wanted to see like, the era that you guys are reading right now in X Factor, like what were his feelings then? What was going on in his head then? Did he have a crush on Rusty? He didn't understand. Like, I want to know these things. And most stories just kind of always jump past that. So I like that we're seeing Dennis Hopeless and Jeff Lem- Lemire. <laughs> I keep messing that up. Whichever. Uh, I like that we're seeing them 
actually handle it and handle the awkwardness of it and the excitement of it and the like nervousness of it. It's it's very rewarding. I like that. Yeah, I've been enjoying the hell out of that. Not all readers have. I know the way it was handled, uh, which involved uh, Jean Grey sort of telepathically looking at Bobby's mind and telling him he was gay, young Bobby, that is. A lot of readers didn't like that. A lot of readers felt that it was bisexual erasure because Bobby had dated women and came out as gay and not bi. I mean, any way to handle this in a medium with so few gay characters, like it puts a lot of weight on those characters coming out stories to represent everybody's coming out stories, which I don't think that's possible, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think you just nailed it. And this is something I think actually that Brett and I have both actually written a lot about at various (laughs) points. And I mean, I think that's basically what it boils down to. There is no cookie cutter coming out story that works for everyone you know, where everyone reacts the way that they would or did in that circumstance that fits everyone's, this is the ideal way for it to work. This is how it should be. It's an incredibly individual experience. It's relative to a huge number of factors. And what the mixed reaction to Iceman speaks to, for me, more than anything else, is that we just need more of those stories. We need to Uh, see a wider range of representation because no one story is going to cover everything. No one story is going to satisfy everyone and no one story should. Yeah. I mean, the X-Men have always been, well, I don't know if metaphor is the correct word, but metaphors, stand-ins, whatever, for various, like, non-privileged populations. And it's always cool, and of course, Jay and I have talked about this, like, a million times, it's always cool when you see non-mutant human diversity side-by-side with mutant diversity in the story that really is supposed to be about diversity. So, yeah, Marvel, great move, but please, more more gay characters, more, like, any trans characters. More More everything. Yes, more everything. Okay, but that aside, so all new X-Men. All new X-Men, right. So we've got this group of kids on this road trip. The first arc of this book focused largely on Cyclops, on the kid version of Cyclops, because he is a character who has always had a somewhat complicated relationship with himself, and all the more so when himself was an adult version who was arguably a supervillain and <laughs> and had, you know, killed their mentor, which was the world he got kind of dragged into. And in a world in the wake of the Noodle incident, that's something he's been struggling with even further. And the question of whether to try to redefine what it means to be Scott Summers and to be Cyclops, whether to run away from that, whether and how to confront it is something that he's struggled with, again, since he showed up, but more acutely in the aftermath of Secret Wars. The first arc of this basically forced him to confront and address that. And then the stuff coming out of it has gone back sort of more into the episodic road trip format. Yeah, um, we've seen a couple of classic villains come back, Blob and Toad in Hopeless's run. And uh, Toad especially, like, Toad was actually kind of fascinating, and I I never thought that could be done with that character. Yeah, Toad is a fascinating character, and he has nuance and depth. (laughs) (laughs) And a huge tongue, also. Well, I actually got a letter published in Uncanny X-Men number 367, the part of the Magneto War, if you remember that. Basically, because I was super mad about Toad's mischaracterization during, I think it was that weird Cerebro arc where Cerebro created his own version of the Hunt for Xavier. Anyway, oof, so that was post Onslaught, Toad. right? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So I like seeing him again. And I love seeing Blob in a nice suit. <laughs> right. For me, though, it's cool just to have an X book that is A, fun, and B, so gloriously, sudsly soap opera-esque. I mean, I have always loved the soap opera elements of X-Men, and like of the current lineup, I think all new X-Men's totally on top of that. Well, that's always been something that Hopeless brought to the line. I mean, he is a writer for whom, at least on X-Books and team titles, the interpersonal dynamics are front and center, and the supervillain fights are kind of framing. They're, you Mm -hmm. know, window dressing, and that's something that's continued. The thing I like most about this book, though, I realized recently while we were talking about is the first book in decades that has felt to me like original New Mutants. 
that's had yeah. that dynamic yeah. and that relative role in the line. And that's a big deal to me because this is one of my definitive early titles. But it also captures something that New Mutants did, which is that coming of age stories are scary and dark and weird. And they're a lot about balancing exercising and finding and grasping for agency and not entirely knowing what to do with it yet. Yeah, totally agree. And this book's been a great example of that. And it also has a Banff named Pickles. So <laughs> it does. And sort of a TARDIS van. Yeah. And yeah. really good Hank McCoy, man. I do like that the arc you were talking about was Cyclops, about him looking to his older self and being like, I don't want to be that. That is the theme of the entire book, because so many of those characters are going through that exact same problem. Like, they're all having these major crises of, you know, faith, identity, relationships. Like, it's it's super, super engaging and dramatic, and it feels the most like an X-Men book of any of the ones we have right now, and it just delights me every time it comes out. So, it good does. job, Dennis. Yeah, I'm going to say, in fact, if <laughs> you you're... You great work. <laughs> yes, God, if you were interested in picking up one ongoing right now, honestly, that's the one I would recommend. It's the one that stands alone best of the team books by a wide margin. I think it's the one that's most accessible relative to prior continuity, despite the time travel elements and time displacement, and does the best yeah, job of, sort of having some of the most confusing characters. It is the most <laughs> accessible by far. Right. It has of the main cast. Let's see. Four of the characters are younger time displaced versions of current continuity characters. One of them is a clone of Apocalypse. Um, Not even a clone, like an attempt at rebuilding him, sort of. Oh, yeah, it's fairly straightforward. She is in her proper timeline. She's got one set of powers. There's only one of her. She's fantastic. She has her own issues going on. She's having a, a really well-developed, really interesting crisis of faith that I think has been building up really since her introduction. But she is chronologically fairly straightforward. Oh, one thing I want to touch on with All New X-Men also is the fact that Angel and Wolverine, Warren and Laura, are dating. Or, uh, well, were. They were. They split up. But it's been great. I love X-Men romance. It's so much fun. I love star-crossed, miserable X-Men romance, which is kind of what this is, because teenagers. Yeah. But actually, I kind of want to address some stuff about Laura in this book, because she's characterized somewhat differently in here, or, or with somewhat different focus than she is in her own miniseries. And this is a version of her, for me, who harkens back in some really good and really valuable and interesting ways to themes that have been explored, I think, since her early stuff in NYX, but at most length and depth in Marjorie Lou's run on X-23, which is one of my favorite actually looks back at the character. And I really appreciate that those things have been brought up relative to her again. Like, she was a character who habitually and somewhat compulsively self-harmed, and whose relationship to her own healing factor in her own body and her relative role in any group and how those related to violence was really fraught and complex. And honestly, I appreciate that those themes haven't just disappeared, that she hasn't just outgrown them and moved on, like that they're still lingering and that there's still things that whether or not they're factors in what she does, the people around her are still questioning, because honestly, that's pretty realistic to that experience. And so, yeah, those are our five kind of core X-Books right now. Again, we're not counting Deadpool, we're not counting Uncanny Avengers, that sort of thing. But that does leave one more book with an X front and center in its title. Two, technically. One ongoing, one miniseries. Ah, good point. Let's cover the miniseries very quickly first, because it's already over. Right. That is X-Men Worst X-Men Ever, written by Max Bemis with the pencils by Michael Walsh. It's fun. It's a short miniseries. It's basically a cynical adult look at the 
what if I were an X-Men story? Yeah, and it's totally outside continuity. It's in its own little, like, sort of best of X-Men universe. It's either entirely outside continuity or fundamentally within all continuity. Either way. how you look at it. But yeah, since it's over, we won't go into it too much. But I will say it's one of my favorite miniseries that I've read in years. It's really darkly funny and strangely hopeful. And the art is gorgeous and the writing is just spot on. I I love it. It's an interesting romp, and it's very much the kind of series that I was hoping to see survive and come out of Secret Wars. It's self-encapsulated, it's interesting, it's an approach and an idea and a central character that I don't think could sustain an ongoing or even really last in one, but works really lovely for an encapsulated arc. Yeah, I mean, well, his mutant power is that he can explode, but only like once, because he would die if he exploded, which is a brilliant premise. It's the worst mutant power. I love it. But we do have one more Outside Continuity X book. Brett, tell us all about it. Oh, guys, X-Men 92. (laughs) X-Men 92 is the Out of Continuity book that was written by Chad Bowers and Chris Sims with art by Alti Furman Saya. And it is my dream book come to life. It is actually like the book that I wanted to write. And then Chad and Chris got the job. And I was like, okay, well, I guess they can do it. And they're doing it great. If you read the Digital First Secret Wars tie-in miniseries X-Men 92, this is kind of a continuation of that. This book is the 90s cartoon, basically. But it's also like the 90s toys and the 90s like Pizza Hut comics. And it's just like X-Men mania of the early 90s put into a book. And it is set in that time. (laughs) And the one main difference between this and the Secret Wars miniseries is that this... Oh, God, this gets so confusing. This takes place in the actual X-Men 92 universe and not the Secret Wars version of that universe. Because in that Um, one, they were basically in, like, a mall, right? Well, they were in Westchester. Yeah. Like, Westchester was their entire world. We're like, Mm -hmm. now, no, now they live on Earth, and it's fine. I think that, like, Chad and Chris even said, like, an interview... I might have been one we did for CBR where it's like everything that happened in the Secret Wars miniseries happened and it's the exact same except like Robert Kelly didn't wear a cape and ride warwolves. Aw. Like that's about it. It's kind of all there is in a way. Like it's just joy. It is just nostalgia and fun. Nostalgia treated with like respect. Like not nostalgia that you feel bad about enjoying. It's still fun. This is fun, guys. Yeah. And there's only one issue out, and it just came out, I think, last week. So the first issue finds the X-Men fighting the, what are they, like the Soviet super soldier team? Uh, it's actually the People's Protectorate, although they do share some membership with the Soviet super soldiers like Darkstar and Ursa Major. Yeah, and then we get Omega Red and uh, Rogue hitting bad guys upside the head with a bear. So. <laughs> <laughs> and Maverick and the upstarts. And oh, my God. Oh, uh, yeah. The one thing that I really wanted, Maverick, because he debuted on a trading card because the 90s. <laughs> and it said like his power on his first trading card was like has precognitive can like see the probabilities of future events. And so I thought that was his power for a good 25 years up until like a month or two ago when I had to write an article for CBR and he was on it. And so I was like hoping that Chad and Chris would include his weird trading card power. Um, and it was just, it's just great to see a character like Maverick back in that stupid, awesome headgear. And it ends with the introduction of Alpha Red. I love that this book actually takes 90s ideas like Omega Red and then kind of either heightens them or sidesteps them. Like the way they use Cassandra Nova in the Secret Wars miniseries. Like I, it's still, isn't just as obvious as, oh, it's a 90s X-Men book. There are so many surprises in this thing. And I can't wait to see what happens next. I'm really excited as well. I mean, I was so prepared both for X-Men 92 and Worst X-Men Ever to be like, oh, it's outside continuity. It doesn't matter, whatever. But that's not how it works. I mean, even if it's its own continuity, all that means is that you have no idea what's going to happen next, which is like super exciting. 
X-Men 92 is one of my favorite hybrids, which is completely unexpected, but full, full, full of weird continuity Easter eggs. Like you said, there's so much allusion to and reverence for the original material, but it's still really accessible, but it's still got those like hidden gems there if you know where to look for them. Like it kind of feels like the prize at the end of a we've done this for 105 episodes and that much research cereal box. One of the things I really enjoyed was uh, toward the end of the first issue when Jubilee and Chamber are on a date seeing a movie and all the movie posters in the background, they're almost all vampire movies. Because Jubilee, of course, is a vampire in the main universe. Nice little touches. Oh, Alti Fermancia, the artist? Let's talk about Alti Fermancia. Oh, dude, she is amazing. I don't know if she actually made her Marvel debut on it, but we first noticed her stuff on the Star-Lord and Kitty Pride Secret Wars series. She is such a good successor to Scott Koblish on this. She's so exuberant. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the colorist here is Matt Miller, who, again, just defines that bright, super saturated look of the era. In particular, like, Fermancia does a lot of stuff really well. Her Wolverine is one of my favorite versions of Logan ever drawn. Yeah. Yeah. Like, those facial expressions are so on point. I think I said at one point that this book is like a Pizza Hut comic. And I mean that with all of the love and adoration I have for that. <laughs> like it, it just totally, and her art specifically, like it taps into like, yeah, this is the thing that I would wear on a t-shirt, on an all over print t-shirt in second grade. You know? <laughs> yes, please. Marvel, please make those. We will buy them. We will all wear them. And I think that's the highest compliment because that's what this book is trying to do. This book is going for that look and that aesthetic and to treat it with, you know, respect, but also fun. I've said fun a million times in describing this book because it's what it is. Basically. That second grade experience, I think, is kind of key to what works about this because I didn't see or read this stuff when it was coming out when I was a kid. I, I came to it way late. But one of the things that everyone my age, which I know you are, Miles, and I think, I think Brett, we're about the same age. Everyone I know who grew up on it has said is that half the fun was that you had no idea what was going on half the time, that it just seemed like everything was so much more complex than what you had access to. And you had to sort of guess and follow those threads and bits. And it really kind of seems like that's what Sims and Bowers are shooting for here is this big, incredibly convoluted, complicated universe. And I'm wondering how much they're actually going to explain. I'm sort of hoping not everything. Well, I'm just saying they appear to be bringing the uh, upstarts and their game back, which is one of like the biggest. Where did that go? Plot threads of the 90s. I mean, it kind of got resolved, but like in four different directions. And then most of them were dropped. So I mean, like Sienna Blaze got traded to another publisher and they never published her again. (laughs) Oh, right. I forgot about that. That was so weird. weird, Like extreme universe or whatever. I love Fitzroy. I love Sienna Blaze. Games Master. Bring them. Bring them on. (laughs) Yes. So yeah, those are our X books right now here in 2016. It's a weird time to be an X fan, but also a kind of cool, unexpected time to be an X fan. What have we got coming up on the horizon? Death of X. Death of X, right. This has been teased in one teaser image. All we know is that it's called Death of X and it uses the same font as Death of Wolverine. I'm thinking it's actually referring to the Dark Horse character X. It's going to be an interpublisher crossover. That'll be my theory. I mean, I work for Dark Horse. They haven't said anything, but I'm assuming. I think this podcast has made Adam X so popular again that they're going to bring him back just to kill him. Oh, man. Well, hopefully we'll have a bunch of uh, tie-in miniseries like they did with Death of Wolverine with all of Adam X's uh, friends and lovers and everyone for whom he's made such a major impact in their lives. He's probably got a friend. Uh, You know, maybe. It's a Mountain Dew. Oh, like little googly eyes. Exactly. 
He talks to it. <laughs> but yeah, so Death of X, I mean, none of us really know anything about this. Of course, we've mentioned the paranoia inherent to being an X-Men fan, and it's certainly stoking some of that. And I suspect that's partially deliberate on Marvel's part. Yeah, I mean. 100%. Well, I mean, look, it's reasonable. Remember when they killed Wolverine and they did it with no fanfare? There definitely weren't any tie-in series, and we haven't seen any characters named Wolverine, let alone Logan himself, in a comic since. <laughs> exactly. And, and Hugh Jackman actually died. He had to comics, change his name. Just because the X-Men comics currently outsell both the Inhuman line and the Guardians of the Galaxy's line, it's definitely on the chopping block, guys. Oh, clearly. But we'll see. I mean, it is nice to see that we have X-related events going on because that means there's attention being paid to the line, and that's not a bad thing. But, you know, I kind of think it's worth at least touching on those rumors and going into that. I've written about this some. I think I wrote something called Marvel is probably not actually trying to destroy everything you love, which is a sentiment I stand by. But honestly, I think the biggest thing that it's really important to remember on these books and to bear in mind, and something that we get around largely by looking at older stuff, is that it is a fraught business to love and be personally invested in characters and stories that you do not own Mm -hmm. and that are not under the control of one individual. It is kind of a gamble and it is putting putting your heart in the hands of stockholders and boards of directors in ways that can be really frustrating and difficult. And I think, you know, we've all sort of been in this for the long game for a while. And I think it might be worth sort of talking about how we've handled that over the years. So, Brett, you've described your relationship with the 90s. Mine was different because the early 90s were when I was really starting to get into X-Men. I mean, I'd grown up with it, but that was when I started buying my own comics and collecting and bagging and boarding things and getting all the weird, like, New Warriors tie-ins and stuff. And for me, the mid to late 90s, I actually stopped reading comics for a long time. It was right after Age of Apocalypse when it came back to the normal universe, and I just got tired, I guess, of it. And so, I don't know, there was a period when I was still buying all the X-Books just because I was hoping that by the sheer force of my commerce, they would become something I liked more again. And I think that, quitting X-Men, coming back to X-Men a couple times, actually, for me, that just taught me, like, if you love the characters, there are going to be good times, there are going to be bad times. It's all going to tie in, sort of, but honestly, stick with it. It's not the cheapest hobby in the world, but at the very least, ask your friends, read Wikipedia summaries, you know, you can still stay abreast of what's going on. I think if there's anything that dropping in and out has taught me, which I have periodically over over even the years I've been following this, it's actually kind of the opposite. It's that you can always walk away and you can always come back. The characters, the stories you love will be around no matter what. You know, if your favorite character dies in a crossover, they will not retroactively disappear from all the previous comics that they've been in. And it's okay to step back if you're frustrated. You are not obliged to, like, your your loyalty to a franchise or to characters you love doesn't have to translate to following it into hell. You can step back, enjoy the parts you enjoy, come back to it later, or not. And that's cool. Being able to disengage, I think, is one of the skills that's come more easily to me coming into this as an adult. But it's one that I've really valued relative to superhero comics because, man, I get really into characters. I have a lot wrapped up in them. I love superheroes. One of the things I love is actually the inconsistency. And I've really learned to dig how varied the perspectives and approaches are over time and over different creative teams. Like, that's part of the appeal for me. But again, you know, the stuff I love most is not going to go away. And yeah, engage with the line and engage with the books that you care about to the extent that you enjoy them. I guess unless you have to review them, in which case you're getting paid for it. So deal. (laughs) I've actually never stopped reading the X-Men since I started in like 1990, early 93, uh, which I think everyone I know goes through a period where they stop reading comics. I just never have. But I think that has taught me kind of the same lessons you both said of like, 
I've seen the X-Men line go through so many cycles over and over again. I mean, I learned when Angel got his feather wings back and when Cyclops died and came back after the 12 and when, like, I saw the cycle and I was like, oh, this is all cyclical. And then it's just like, you know, your mind opens. <laughs> so now when things like this happen, I, I know that. Like, I know eh, everything will be fine eventually. Nightcrawler dies, Nightcrawler will be back. Like, people are going to die in Civil War too that I'm sure I love. I'm going to be fine with it because they'll be back in a couple of years. All a death means is that a character is not going to get an ongoing series for maybe a year or so. And with the X-Men, the X-Men are like my favorite things. I can just keep going back and rereading. Like, I'll reread From the Ashes all the time. I'll reread X-Force, the original one, all the time. Doesn't go away. Um, so that that about covers the state of the X-Books right now. Um, meanwhile, you've got questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Do you think it would be good for the X-Men comics to do multiple miniseries instead of a bunch of ongoings like there have been in the past? Uh, I, I want everything. I, I'm i a number person, so the fact that we keep getting reboots and we don't have like big numbers really grates on my nerves, Just which I understand is like not an important thing. It's um, so important. Are you kidding? <laughs> consistent numbering. It, without consistent numbering, we are animals. I, I, and I, I need it. I need it so bad. But I've I try to be OK with relaunching. I just want stories, basically. I think that in the market the way it is now, the notion of an ongoing series, most of which only last six issues, seems kind of stupid in a way. Like, I kind of just want just make comics, make them graphic novels, just do whatever. So I'm kind of I'm kind of everything. I mean, my preferred thing is a core group of ongoing series that go for 300 issues and don't ever get canceled. But that ain't going to happen. <laughs> I actually really like what a lot of publishers have been talking about lately, Marvel included, which is the idea of seasons, the idea of having, you know, Uncanny X-Men run for a couple years. And then after that, we get another volume of Uncanny X-Men. And each of those is not really a distinct story exactly because there are multiple stories, but kind of an era before some kind of a status change quo. We get stories that last for a little while that way, but we also have places for new readers to jump in, which I think is awesome. It makes me irrationally angry that they call them seasons. Well, they can call them something else. They, um, they should, yeah. I do oh, yeah. wish volumes would work. I actually do wish that there was a way to tell what was what so that you don't have to say, oh, yeah, this is the Uncanny X-Men version that came out in 2013, not the one that came out in 2016. Yeah, this is series three, volume two or whatever. Yeah, it would be nice if that was more consistent. Oh, God. I mean, I'm with Brett. I want it all. I want stories that are suited more to ongoings and ongoing format. I want series that are suited more to uh, self-contained miniseries and miniseries format. That makes sense to me. W.C. Witt asks on Tumblr. With the recent announcement of the New Mutants movie, do you think it's finally time for the X-Men films to get really weird and introduce elements of magic and more cosmic sci-fi? The most non-committal answer I can possibly give here is basically I want them to tell good stories. If they are able to do that while incorporating those elements, I want them to incorporate those elements. If not, I don't want them to. For me, I think, I like the idea. Don't get me wrong. I love the cosmic stuff. I love the magic stuff. But the X-Men movies so far have been very, well, I'm not going to say grounded in reality because some weird shit happens, <laughs> but they've been uh, less fantastical than they might be. Certainly less fantastical than the Marvel Cinematic Universe in many ways. And it seems like it would be a weird shift. Honestly, I think what I'd like is maybe get a few more movies out of this current generation of the franchise. I'm very curious about New Mutants, Apocalypse. We'll see where that goes. And I would kind of love to see the franchise rebooted. I'd kind of love to see a more traditional superhero take on the X-Men universe in the movies. Yeah, I think we're ready. I think it is way past time for the X-Men movie universe to reboot. I want to see the Imperial Guard on screen now. <laughs> oh, man. I want to see what Gladiator's mohawk looks like in three oh, dimensions. Yeah. Or for that matter, Shi'ar hair, because Shi'ar hair makes no sense to me and never has. How would they do it? Oscar winning hair and makeup teams. 
Yes. Uh, they could get the people that did the Centauri hair from Babylon 5, and that would kind of be a start. That's all I can think of. Okay, I want to see the Wachowski sisters do epic X-Men space opera. Yes, that would be amazing, please. The Wachowski sisters' brood saga. Everything oh. you just said is, is so good. <laughs> okay, well, there we go. There is our definitive answer. It's not exactly a direct answer, but it's the answer to all things. Okay, well, let's do one last question. REVZJ asks on Tumblr, what's the difference between a mystery like What Scott Did and something like the long-form mysteries on Hickman's Avengers? That is an excellent question. For me, the primary difference is that one of them is something that functions as an impediment to the unfolding of narrative and the telling of stories, and the other one is a component of it. So Hickman's story is fundamentally a mystery story. It's about, you know, a slow burn reveal. It's about leaving those breadcrumb trails, establishing tiny pieces that come together into a larger whole that you can only start to see towards the end. The What Cyclops Did mystery, the fact that it hasn't been revealed doesn't propel any narrative. There's no mystery beyond we don't know this, and there's no good reason that we don't know this. It doesn't actually really serve any story purpose for us not to know it. I mean, I guess we know it now, but for that not to be in the larger X books. And actually, to that end, I want to segue briefly. We are going to be throwing a contest. This is going to be the Noodle Incident Contest because I don't think Marvel's ever actually going to reveal it, so that means it's up to us. That's right. So whatever you think Cyclops did... Or whatever you want Cyclops to have done, send it to us. Send us, you know, a paragraph, a picture, whatever it is. Give it the subject line, noodle incidents, to explain the X-Men at gmail.com. We will put them all up on the website. We will send our favorite one something. It might just be a box of noodles. We'll see. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that Marvel's totally watching, and they will decide to retroactively change their original plan for whatever the winner of this contest has described. That's not actually true. It might be. We, we can never dream. Know. We but can dream. But it's not. But anyway, yeah, Brett, what do you think? Uh, I think that Cyclops unfollowed all the Inhumans on Twitter, and it really made them mad. <laughs> I, I like this plan. Man, here in 2016. But oh, yeah. do, you think, do, you th do you think he subtweeted Black Bolt? Oh, oh, yeah, of course. And you know, Black Bolt is all about Twitter because it's the only way he can communicate. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. And with that, so we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of Patreon support come with acknowledgement on the podcast from fictional characters or concepts or whatever. So normally I do the supervillain voices, but since this is a somewhat atypical episode, I believe we're giving a nod to the current state of affairs and turning it over to the X-Line's most mysterious supervillain, Cyclops. First of all, I would like to point out that the term supervillain is phenomenally and egregiously slanted. History is effectively written by its survivors and occasionally the self-righteous teenage counterparts of its casualties. But that's actually largely moot since either of those parties should understand that despite an unfortunate and unanticipated outcome, I have acted solely in what I perceived at the time to be the best interests of the mutant people. People like Adam Condon and Dave McDonald, who have been systematically disenfranchised by a world that hates and fears them for no reason but the accident of their genetics. Was that okay? You tried, Cyclops. Yeah, story of my life. <laughs> so anyway, um, Brett, <laughs> thank you so much for uh, coming on the show and hanging out and talking 2016 X-Men with us. Thank you guys for having me. I'm so stoked. And we, so are, we are absolutely dragging you back on when we hit X-Force. Totally. I, I am the only person that will defend that <laughs> with my dying breath. I think David Brothers would too, actually. Awesome. So where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter, basically at Brett White. Uh, also, Comic Book Resources, where I'm an assistant editor, and you can read my column every Wednesday in your Face Jam, which is an X-Force reference. Also, my sketch comedy podcast, Left-Handed Radio. That's about it. All right, and we will drop links to all of those in the As Mentioned. 
Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. Special thanks to our guest, Brett White, who you can find regularly covering mutant matters at Comic Book Resources, and to Dennis Hopeless for helping us out on the cold open. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more. And don't forget to send us in the next week your ideas of what happened in the noodle incident. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, join us for a live episode recorded at Emerald City Comic Con with guests Christopher Anka, Scott Koblish, and G. Willow Wilson. 